Hello there, this is the Psychology Report, and good to have you with me again today. You know, as a psychologist, uh, it's one of my uh, duties, obviously to my patients as well as to myself and my profession, is to be well-read and to read a wide variety of books and articles and journals and research reports of all kinds, particularly of the nature that affects me as a practicing psychologist and therapist with my patients to read on issues and problems they bring to my attention and uh, to look at different aspects of the population that I see in my in my office and to be knowledgeable and to be up uh, up in front and be uh, well read and to be prepared for whatever situation you know comes my way and in the process of uh, reading, you know, you come a lot upon a lot of different kind of factors that just kind of show some trends that are going on in America and taking place in our country. And um, I think it's very important that we uh, be aware of what the trends are and what is happening. Because then I can look at my patients and discuss issues with them knowledgeably and uh, being an informed person and help them make decisions that they have to make in life themselves. So I have to come with a background of knowledge, a background of experience, a background of, of appreciation for the issues that uh, people bring to my attention. Now, that's just my requirement. You know, obviously, you have the same kind of thing. In your field of work, your field of endeavor, you have to be up to date also. You have to be well-read. You have to be well-rounded. You have to be well-prepared. And if you're not, you become less of an employee. You become less of a professional. Um, so that's the requirement, particularly of the professions. The requirement is to be well-read, well-rounded, and well-informed. And be ready for whatever comes your way to answer questions and deal with issues. Now, in the process of that, I came upon a couple of different articles recently that I'd just like to share them with you and kind of a potpourri kind of a situation today. You know, we hear a lot about uh, mothers and giving birth to their children. And generally speaking, in our culture, we take the position that birth would be best if it were delivered or a child would be delivered in the early years of a woman's life, obviously in the ages of 20 to 30. And those are the best child-rearing years. And... Uh, the woman is physically capable of producing a child, but also the stamina that is needed to carry that child for the nine months and to deliver that child, and then to recover from that and go on with life. So we think in terms of those years of the 20 to 30 years as being really a good years for child rearing. But some recent research has kind of shed some different light on this subject of uh, aging and uh, child rearing, and the mother's brain, what's going on in the mother's brain uh, at different points in time in life, and here's what they did, they took women, they compared a group of women who delivered all their children in the ages of 24, so shortly around 24, 25, 26, or shortly thereafter, and they compared that to a group of women who gave birth to children after age 35. So they were trying to get this essence of aging and whether that made a difference in the child 
that is produced or the mother or the combination. Well, here's what the finding of the research indicates. That women who give birth after age 35 to a child, and they took one child, but it could be two, one child, after age 35, had much stronger brains than the women who gave all their birth to their children the age before age 24, 25 and 26. So what was the factor here that was operating? If you give, a, if you give birth to a child at age 35, the researchers found that the brains of these women actually increased significantly in what is known as the executive functions of the brain. Now, the executive functions of the brain are the forebrain, mostly on the right. The forebrain, meaning have to do with thinking ahead, planning, making executive decisions, uh, strategizing, just thinking things through, being prepared, looking ahead, looking around the corner, if you will, just being forward in your thought process and your thinking and be ready to deal with life as it comes. So the executive functions of the brain seem to increase stronger among the women who give birth after age 35. Now why is that? Why do the brains of women in the older years are giving when they give child birth are stronger in the executive function of the brain? Why? Well, the researchers said this. It's probably related to the estrogen and progesterone that is produced during the pregnancy. And that the estrogen and the progesterone stimulates the brain, strengthens the brain, and gives that brain a greater sense of power, or sense of, of uh, uh, functioning than if it were in a younger woman. So they were wondering, I guess that's what they speculated, that that's why older women, 35 and above, who give birth to children, have this stronger sense of brain power in the forward part of their brain, executive functioning of the brain. Very interesting research finding. So in other words, giving birth to the child a little bit later is not necessarily a social uh, detriment, a physical detriment, a cognitive detriment, or a learning detriment for the child, or for the mother, for that matter. We have all these kind of ideas that if you give birth later in life, there's more risks, and there's more risk to the child and more risk to the mother. Well, that not, is not necessarily the case in this particular research. Now, I'm sure there's a point in time, maybe at 45, if you will, that that's not particularly recommended. But uh, at least as far as women 35 years of age and older, there's some advantages to giving birth to your child when you're in that age range. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting study in showing that women do, in fact, have greater cognitive abilities. You know, and I, it may be the progesterone, it may be the estrogen, it may be. But it certainly puts the mother into a role, into a position, where she has to now make more decisions at 35 years of age in life, who has a baby. You know, she's probably got a career, probably has work responsibilities, have other children, have responsibilities at the school and the community and her church. You know, at age 35, a woman is well-placed in the community and has much more activity and much more responsibilities and has to juggle more balls in the air, has to juggle more responsibilities 
than they do at age 24. So is it the chemical difference, the hormonal difference in the woman at that time, or is it the fact that she has now have to learn to think differently, has to strategize, has to plan ahead, has to coordinate a lot of different components and parts to make things work and make things function in her life? Does she just have to kind of use that forward part of the brain more uh, frequently and in a stronger way than she would have had she had all of her children born before age 24? I would go with that option myself. It may be a combination of those two. We do know that hormonal changes take place during pregnancy, so there may be some factors there. But we certainly see the fact that a woman has to engage in much cognitive strategizing. And that, because of that, you learn to think differently. You learn to become prepared. You learn to deal with many components and parts and make them all work together. And as a result of that, that brain is stronger at age 35 than it would be otherwise. Okay, that's number one. Now, there's another research study with the brain uh, that came to my attention. And this was... Um, written up in the American uh, Journal of, of Medicine, American Medicine Association Journal, in, in the area of internal medicine. And what they found is then they're looking at people ages 65 and above. Over the last 10 years, they took the years of um, 2000 to 2012, actually. Took about a 12-year span of time, years of 2000 to 2012, and found that among people who are 65 years and older, Americans, actually decreased in the number of people who were giving signs and indications of dementia. In 2000, 11 to 12 percent of the population of age 65 and older were showing dementia. In 2012, that same age group, that same population of people, it decreased to 8.8 or 9% of the population. So we show about a 2%, 3% reduction in the amount of dementia over a 10-year period of time from the years of 2000 to 2012. So what's going on here? You see? Well, kind of look at it this way. We've been educating people for the last 10 to 15 years in a mighty way. Articles in all kinds of magazines all kinds of journals, all kinds of books that the older people tend to read. And there have been articles in the ARP magazine, as an example, of what to do to prevent dementia, what to do to slow down the dementia process. How do you live your life as an older person so you have longevity? How do you live your life so you have quality of life as an older person? We've been educating our older people to eat well, to be socially active, to be intellectually challenging and to go places where your brain is stimulated, you see, to eat better, to socialize, to exercise, to walk and to be active and to be vigorous in your activity. You know, we have been just bombarding our older population with ways to live better, to prevent the dementia from onset or certainly slowing down the process once de dementia sets in. So we're beginning to see, I think, some of the benefits of this educational process that's been going on in a 12-year period of time from 2000 to, 2000 to 2012, that 
12-year period of time. So good for older people. They're paying attention. They're reading. They're listening. They're doing. They're following. They're taking on responsibility for their own life. So they not only have longevity, but they have quality of life. They have quality of brain. They have quality of thinking. They have quality of functioning. They have problem. They have quality of learning. They have quality of problem solving in their, in their later years. So it's working. Keep on being educated. And if you're not in the age group of 65, you're younger than that, take heed. Be active. Be socialized. Intellectually challenge yourself. Uh, get out socially. Eat better. Exercise. Do all the things that kind of stimulate that brain. And make sure that our brain is functioning well as we come into our older years. Now, there's one other research study that I would like to just share with you, which is kind of more of a sad note to it, and um, kind of an unhappy one, but it has to do with our teenagers. You see, a research study was recently produced and published in the Journal of Pediatrics. And in 2014, they did a survey of a group of teenagers that they also had contact with in the year 2005. So between 2005 and 2014, almost 10 year period of time there, the National Survey of 175 teenagers, 175,000, 175,000 teenagers in the ages of 12 to 17 were studied relative to their health habits and um, just how they go about living their life. And um, this also included their drug use. So the drug use and health habits and lifestyle. And what they found with these kids, now look, we're looking at ages 12 to 17, 175,000 of them they were studied here and compared to their life in the year 2005 to now 2014. Here's what they found, that the suicide rate has gone up. It went up from 8% to 11% among our teenagers, about a 3% increase in suicide rate. But here's the sad part of it. For teenage girls, the rate increased from 13% to 17%, kind of a 5% increase. We saw a much greater increase among the girls in their suicide rate. That shows about a 35% increase over time. So girls are committing suicide at a much greater rate than they did in the year 2005. But also you can look at all teenagers are committing suicide at a much greater rate in 2014 than they did in 2005. So both boys and girls increased in suicide rates, but the girls particularly showed an increased rate in their suicide level. Now what's going on there? They? Are these kids being neglected? Are these kids being left alone too much? Are these kids needing support but don't have it? Are these kids desiring to have a family but don't have it? Do these kids come home to an empty home? Are these kids orphans? What I mean by that is are they emotional orphans? They may not be social or physical orphans. But are they emotional organs, orphans? Do they, do they live in a family that basically ignores them? 
Mother and dad are absent. Mother and dad are busy. Mother and dad are preoccupied with other kinds of things going on in their life. And these kids are being overlooked. These kids are being neglected. These kids are just being left to fend for themselves. And when depression hits, and when they come to a point in life when they feel discouraged and helpless and maybe hopeless, do they have anybody to turn to? And if they don't, suicide becomes an option. Gang behavior becomes an option, you know, as well. And that's a whole different subject and a whole different topic. But I feel badly for our teenage population. Suicide risk is on the increase. And I think very seriously that this is related to parental neglect, to parental preoccupation, to parental over-involvement outside and beyond the home and beyond the scope of your children. Children are being left to their own devices to solve their own problems, to deal with their own issues, and to get support wherever they can get it. And if they can't get it at all, what do they have left to turn to? That's the sad word. So if you're a parent, take heed. If you have a teenage child or children, take this very seriously. We're looking at a very tough issue in the life of children today, teenagers, you know, today. And the city in which I live and nearby cities have just experienced a raft of teenage suicides over the last month or two. And it happens towards the end of the school year, very common. Happens during the holiday seasons, Christmas holiday seasons, very common. When seasons get to be stressful, kids are under stress, and if they don't have anybody to support them and help them and assist them at those times, they consider other options. Unfortunately, suicide becomes an option to consider. So at the end of school semesters, when their exams are on and they're important and they're tough, that's when the stress levels increase. And um, I bring this to your attention as a parent, particularly as a parent of teenage kids. But don't neglect our teenagers, whether they're your own teenagers or their neighbors or their friends, teenagers or friends, or in the neighborhood where you live or the church you attend or wherever it might be. Make sure that teenagers have a place to go and to be part of and to be where they belong and they're accepted and they're welcome. And they're given a sense of value and importance and consideration. Well, this has been the Psychology Report, and um, these are some very interesting research studies. They're very important to me as I prepare myself to meet with people in my life that come into my office and seek my counsel as a therapist. Now, before I leave, I'd just like to bring this one thing to you. One of the sponsors of this program and sponsors of my television program, which is entitled, by the way, Doctor Teach Me to Parent, and you can hear it every Saturday morning at 10 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the network Central Valley Talk. It's an online network, centralvalleytalk.com, centralvalleytalk.com. 10 o'clock in the morning every Saturday Pick it up, and one of my sponsors of that program is the Fresno Rescue Mission. Now, you may not live in Fresno, or maybe you do, or nearby, but whatever city you live in, there tends to be a rescue mission for the people who are homeless, and people who are addicted, and people who have 
great problems and have nowhere else to turn.